You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. I've got Dr Raj Menon back on the podcast today and we're continuing to talk about pain. Welcome back, Raj. Thank you, Tim. So, Raj, I'm going to throw a few questions off the, the schedule. Sure, yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> uh, these are common sort of pain presentations, sure. okay? So what do you think about this? The person who comes in and says, oh, doc, I'm normally, I've normally got a great pain tolerance, but do you think people actually do have high pain tolerance? Uh, pain tolerance is a really interesting concept. Um, there's been a lot of research into this, and, uh, you know, if I nerd out about pain, I can go on forever. But the, the idea of... Um, of descending control of pain pathways is kind of uh, all the rage in pain literature. It has been for several years now. But I think no one's now denying the concept that the brain has a downstream effect on modulating pain. Uh, you know, we have an ability to amplify pain and we have an ability to, to reduce pain. And there's lots of arguments as to why that was evolu- uh, you know, necessary from an evolutionary point of view. Um, and, you know, Putting that into lay terms can often help people to really understand what that might mean, having a, a high pain threshold or a low pain threshold. Um, I think what I tend to find, I mean, there's a bunch of other factors at play in here, cultural factors, you know, uh, com- psych- psychological comorbidities, pre-existing pain conditions, etc. But what I generally tend to find when I'm explaining this to patients in a sort of a layperson explanation is that getting people to understand that having pain for a long time is usually actually going to lower your pain threshold, not increase it, mm. is often the first stumbling block for, for people. Um, but if we talk through why that might be the case, people often seem to understand that. And then the whole concept of high and low pain threshold starts to change. Um, the other thing to sort of to, to consider is that there is evidence, and again, this is all based on you know, surrogate outcomes like functional MRIs, that um, chronic pain tends to cause a lot of interaction between prefrontal cortex and uh, basal ganglia, hippocampus. And so the, the actual way pain is perceived is probably changing over time um, in an almost a sort of neurocognitive, neurodegenerative kind of way. And so people's reporting of pain is going to change. And so that's when traditional measures that we've used, such as uh, numerical pain scores and stuff like that, start to become less useful. But that's often mistaken for having a high pain threshold because they say, I always live at a seven or an eight. Mm. But really what that possibly means is their perception of their pain is now completely skewed from the norm and a seven or an eight doesn't really mean much anymore. And often when people have chronic pain, I actually don't ask for pain scores anymore. In Mm. fact, I rarely ask for a pain score outside of an acute pain inpatient round because it doesn't really mean much in a chronic setting. That's fascinating. So there may not be such a thing as a pain-tolerant or an intolerant person. Uh, well, there, there probably is. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's probably, got a, it's probably got a lot to do with whether they can modulate their own pain reasonably well. Um, and there is some thinking that we may be able to target our analgesia specifically based on whether a person has impaired inhibition or enhanced amplification of pain. And they may, for example, respond better to pregabalin compared to duloxetine depending on one or the other. Um, that's you know still in very early stages, but you know when you do things like uh, cause a painful stimulus and then get the patient to report on another painful stimulus, you can see whether they're actually modulating their pain based on the first pain stimulus. So there probably are people who are better at modulating their own pain than other people. If we want to call that thresholds, we we could I suppose, but it, I think it's slightly misleading. But 
perhaps a from a practical point of view, it's probably not an unreasonable way to go. Like I said, I warned you already, I'm going to nerd out on this. If you know what <laughs> well, <That's it. laughs> I, you can settle one other problem. It's a sort of a, a discussion I've had with my wife, who's yes. a dentist. And I, she yeah. observed, this is her observation, that, that big, muscly men are, tend to have really low pain thresholds, <laughs> and women generally are tougher than men. Yeah, look, I've got my own theories on this, and this is by no means evidence-based or, or otherwise. Um, but I think most doctors would probably agree that we tend to find that particularly young men have a lot more trouble dealing with pain and dysfunction than the average you know, non-young man, if, if you want to put it that way, particularly compared to, to women who are often of this, you know, but women who are the same age. Um, I, I've got my own completely anecdotal theories about this. I think women are probably much more used to their body not doing what they want it to do from an early age compared to, to men. And you know, we go. We usually go through puberty thinking, well, if I want to do X, my body will permit me to do X without really causing a problem. Um, and I think facing that, suddenly being faced with the fact that actually I don't have total control mm. over my, you know, over what I whatever I want to do, and unpleasant things are going to happen. I'm not sure that we're all placed to face that really well. If you've suffered from a chronic disease your whole life, you might have a very different response to pain compared to if you've been completely well and the first time someone sticks a needle in your jaw, all of a sudden you know, there's some unpleasant realities about the world which you have to face. Uh, but I generally do find that I, I might struggle a little bit more to shift perspective for young men who come in with back pain or, you know, back injuries or that sort of thing um, because the whole world seems to fall apart when all of a sudden they can't just get up and run because they feel like it. Mm. Um, that's, so, this is all speculation. <laughs> so, yeah, observationally there is a sort of a bit of gender yeah, bias yeah. or gender, gender difference sure. and, um, and situation, you know, stage yeah. of life. and Absolutely, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's let's talk about uh, chronic pain. Sure. Um, what do you find when you work in chronic pain? And mm. I think a lot of people sort of struggle with chronic pain patients. What do you find rewarding, and what do you find challenging about chronic pain? Um, so I think if I talk about rewarding things first, um, I, I mentioned this, you know, in, in the previous episode. Um, I think having continuity is really nice, and uh, I don't get that in my anaesthetic practice. Um, but also the the working as a multidisciplinary team, I think, is is a really um, enjoyable process. I, I find that really, I mean, rewarding is probably the best word for it. Being able to uh, to speak to other disciplines and other specialties and and involve them in a in a patient's treatment course is really rewarding. And I think often it's actually very necessary. And those of us that excuse me try to sort of uh, push through without doing that often end up really stuck mm. um, but you know uh, in, in a chronic pain setting people that present with chronic pain are often uh, diagnostic challenges um, and they've been through the mill a little bit and so getting a patient who's kind of sitting in front of you with no real diagnosis I get to do some lateral thinking which I really enjoy um, and I think the other thing is if someone's significantly dysfunctional or debilitated uh, particularly you know if it's been going on for some time being able to work with them to set goals and then achieve those goals and actually return function to a patient is really satisfying. When someone comes back to you and says, I'm back at work now, or you know, I was able to look after my kids all day last week, those sorts of things are really, really rewarding and I think it, it really changes the whole, the whole dynamic when a patient can come back and, and happily tell you that they've gained some independence back again. Um, the other thing I think is establishing a good therapeutic relationship in chronic pain really you've got to get to know the patient really well you've got to ask really get down into the nitty-gritty of their personal life their social life 
occupational life. You're often asking questions about, you know, libido and sex life and stuff like that, which I never ask as an anesthetist. No. Um, and, you know, getting to know people like that and having those conversations is actually like a really privileged position. And I, I find that really rewarding because, um, you know, people are trusting me with information, often without really knowing why, because what's this got to do with my back pain? But the more you get to know them, the more you can understand what it is that's, that's maybe stopping them or limiting them. And I, I really enjoy that. The other thing, of course, is I get to do procedures, which are fun. So let's talk about patients with chronic pain. Sure. What do we know about patients who develop chronic pain and, and what increases the risk of someone becoming, you know, affected by chronic pain? Okay, so I don't think any, any of us are real strangers to how people with chronic pain tend to present. So they tend to be fairly low and despondent, often over-medicalised, multiple treatment failures, um, often on opioids. A significant proportion of them tend to be have coexisting yellow flags mm. um, such as depression or anxiety there, there, was a, there was a paper that came out a few years ago which suggested that the, the proportion of people in chron- with borderline personality disorder is higher in the chronic pain setting compared to the psychiatric setting mm. um, so you know people can have can be very kind of confrontational often difficult to deal with interaction with them can be very exhausting very draining um, and I think understanding a little bit about where that's coming from can be helpful it doesn't necessarily make it any make it that much easier, but certainly can give you a little bit more perspective about where the patient might be coming from. Uh, the predisposition to developing chronic pain, that's again uh, hotly debated at pain conventions, and it's a bit of a contentious area. There's lots of theories about you know nature versus nurture, epigenetics of pain, um, what sort of uh, factors from the, from patient's cellular biology and neurobiology might be giving them an increased risk of developing chronic pain from an acute pain problem. There are some risk factors which are fairly well understood. So we talk about depression and anxiety. Catastrophizing is you know, fairly well accepted as being a risk factor. Um, if they've got pre-existing pain problems and the more pre-existing pain problems they have, the more likely that this new pain will develop into a chronic pain problem. Um, there are some types of surgery which are very well you know, identified as being high risk. So uh, hernia surgery, breast surgery, chest wall surgery amputations, um, possibly uh, knee replacements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are sort of well accepted as being at-risk uh, surgeries Surgery. for yeah. developing chronic post-operative pain. And the other thing is to, is to, again, and this is a, a vaguer definition, people who tend to be passive copers generally mm. are probably more likely to develop a chronic pain problem. So what do you mean by passive coper? Yeah, so we, we can talk about this in a few different ways. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with external, internal locus of control concepts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so essentially just talking about how, you could say, how much ownership the patient is willing to take of a given different problem or barrier or obstacle and how much they're willing to say, I need to look after this or I need to be able to do something about this rather than what can you do for me? Why isn't anyone doing anything for me? No one seems to be able to help me. Yeah, and this is one of the key messages that I, in my observation of chronic pain, mm. is this issue of, oh, doctor, what, what's the next yes. thing you can do for me? And you can, maybe I could see this doctor, or if I could go on this medicine. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. It, it just seems to consolidate this dependency and helplessness almost. I think we, as a medical, as in the practice of medicine, I think we're often guilty of fostering that in our patients. Yeah. So much of medicine is now geared towards... Uh, let's do the scan, let's do the investigation, let's uh, categorise you, let's risk stratify you. Here's what you need to take. And if that doesn't work, then it must be because we gave you the wrong drug or the wrong scan or the wrong surgery. So we need to give you a new drug or a new scan or a new surgery. Mm-hmm. And it, they, 
we sort of build up this dependence of, well, I need to keep coming back to the doctor while they figure out what's wrong with me. Yeah. And in lots of types of medicine, that's absolutely the correct approach, I'm sure. Um, cardiology or gastroenterology or you know, cancer surgery, all this sort of stuff. We, we do take on a very active role and the patients often become fairly passive. Perhaps that could be done better, but I don't work in either specialty, so I can't really, you know, uh, I'm not really going to comment on that. Um, but uh, if we then take that same approach to treating a, a pain problem, you're setting the patient up very early to be a passenger rather than a driver. And I think that's where we often lose them and where we can spend years trying to win them back again is if we set them up early to think that, well, someone else is going to fix this for me, all I have to do is find the right person or the right pill or the right needle. And if we're talking about early intervention in pain management, I really think that's, for me, that would be the most important thing. Um, if we could catch them right at the beginning and know what we're looking for and say and really set them up to say, look, I think you're going to be absolutely fine with this. This is what you can do to make sure this doesn't become a problem. Um, getting them independent, getting them uh, understanding early on that they are in control and they are mo- the ones who are most likely to be able to change something for themselves. Maybe I'm being idealistic here. Um, I reckon that would make a huge difference for people if they could come to you saying, I've tried this, this is what I want to do next. I don't think X is working, but I think I can do X, you know, Y and Z. Um, what do you think? And becoming a more of a collaboration rather than a, well, that didn't work, Doc. What else you got for me? Which we've all been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's just emphasize that sure. point because it's probably the most important point we're going to uh, talk I think about. So. Yeah. You yeah. know, this idea that early interventions, mm. like early identification of a mm. chronic pain patient, yeah. and actually saying, you're not a passenger here. Yeah. You are active in this process yeah. and you have the control. It's not mm. because it's not because I'm going to give you this medicine or this, this injection. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's probably the most important thing. And the earlier you can do that with a chronic pain patient, mm. the better they'll do. I would agree. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the biggest things is time. And we're all time poor. I'd probably argue that you guys are more time poor than I am because I get at least half an hour with, mm. with most of my patients, if not longer. But time and and discussion education is really key and uh, over time uh, I think people can learn to trust you when you say it's going to be okay Um, and you guys do have the advantage of multiple interactions with people which I probably have less Um, but I I really feel like if knowing other allied health practitioners out there who can sing this song is probably a key part of this if the first thing the patient comes to you and says I need help, what can you do for me? And you send them to someone, they'll trust you and say, okay, they're sending this to this person because they think that they're good. And then that person sets them up really early with independence and self-management. I think that's possibly going to be more useful. That doesn't always happen when we send someone to a physiotherapist, as you know. And there's you know different branches of physiotherapy are effective at different things. And if someone's ripe for developing a chronic pain problem and all they get is passive treatments for six sessions... Yeah. possibly cause more harm than good. Mm. I mean, there are those passive treatments such as you know, acupuncture, TENS machines, ultrasound, all definitely have roles and they are used in acute pain fairly well. So I'm not dismissing them by any means. I've certainly made use of them from time to time. But if you can think, okay, this is a good person for that physio that I know that will sit and talk to the patient for half an hour mm. um, and you can engage them early, you can make a huge difference. And you know, I've got, you know, I now know of a few around the place who are, specialise in this and some of them even come to our multidisciplinary meetings and because they've taken a real interest in chronic pain. I think that would be really helpful. Uh, I think more patient education is always going to be helpful and there are, some of us keep trying to write resources and books and websites and stuff that can try and uh, 
develop this a little bit more. Um, but uh, by and large, I think backing off on the pharmacotherapy and the interventions, and even sometimes the uh, investigations, mm. um, can really set the right tone for people. Um, how that is implemented in general practice when you've got the time constraints that you've got, I think you're probably going to be able to comment on that more than I am. Mm. But uh, that's kind of what I see when people come to me and the ones that I see succeeding and the ones that I see not succeeding are the ones who the ones who believe that they can do it usually do. And that, yeah. yeah, that's really great advice. Being a, a pain specialist, when do you recommend invasive treatments? And you know, where do they fit into sure. the picture? Because I think that's where we, sort of, yeah. we often struggle with when to sort of bring in those. Yeah, Look, this is again a contentious issue. There's a reasonable deg- degree of... Uh, division amongst the, the, the pain medicine world about whether interventions should be done or shouldn't be done at all. Mm. Um, the, the, the truth about the evidence uh, is that most uh, interventional procedures, cortisone injections, rhizotomies, etc., have very little evidence to make long-term improvements for chronic pain, uh, particularly if you're looking at function. Mm. Um, however, pharmacotherapy doesn't fare much better. Um, <laughs> Don't. No. Yeah. And uh, multidisciplinary care, which is sort of the gold standard, while very effective, it's not that much more effective and is fairly labor intensive and expensive. And mm-hmm. so it's not easy to apply. You can't prescribe multidisciplinary care to every chronic pain patient that walks in the door. We don't have the resources for it. Mm-hmm. So we have to look at the realities, I think. And um, I think the use of these medications, I use them for specific settings. So if a patient is engaging with physical rehabilitation but they've plateaued because it hurts too much, I might consider doing a procedure. Um, if the pain is interfering with other factors such as sleep or, or relationships or work to such a degree that the patient is actually dysfunctional, I might consider doing a procedure. If I, can do, if I can do a rhizotomy and someone can stay working and therefore financially stable, able to afford their physiotherapy, able to feed their family for six months, I would probably consider that a win. Um, if the patient is getting a rhizotomy but their function is continuing to fall over the next six months, I would consider that a failure of treatment. Um, so, and the other thing is, of course, if a patient has a severe exacerbation, you might think, well, they're not, they're just going to be stuck here for the next six weeks and possibly decondition. Perhaps an intervention might be something that can get them out of that hole. I haven't talked about spinal cord stimulation because that's a whole other thing. There are some very specific indications for that, which are actually very highly evidence-based, um, and can be very effective. Um, but that's a highly invasive, fairly specialized treatment, mm-hmm. which I guess you, you guys don't to worry about prescribing. But there are some patients who will very specifically respond extremely well and be very functional with neuromodulation as a separate entity. Now, that's really helpful. And I, I mean, in essence, what you're saying is if you go down that pathway, it's a bit of an experiment of one and, yes. you, and you're really looking for the functional gains. Exactly, yeah. Um, so probably a matter of being pretty clear and transparent with patients about that. that... Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm fairly open with people that come to see me. Within the first consult, I will say, I'm actually not interested in how much pain you're in. I'm interested in what you can do, mm. and I'm interested in how that changes over time, not how much pain you report. Most people actually respond fairly positively to that, mm. which I think is usually because of the good work that you guys put in before they come to me. Well, and so the, here's a, the, the final question. How do you stay positive with um, chronic pain patients? Because they can start to get you down, particularly you know those ones that are very dependent. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about why people with chronic pain can, can have... Uh, a skew in their perception or even their sort of judgment or cognition and they're often not really in a in a we think in a place to actually be able to take on advice about difficult truths independent self-management and it that can be really exhausting um i think staying positive with them 
for me, it comes back to reframing the conversation and setting goals that they can actually reasonably, realistically achieve. And then congratulating the patient for making small changes, I think, is a really useful tool, mm. um, which we, you employ in chronic disease types of all sorts, you know, whether it's diabetes or epilepsy, but saying, look, that's really great. Look, I'm really glad that you were able to go for a walk three times this week. I think we should congratulate you for that. You should be commended for that. Um, you know, usually brings a bit of a smile to people's faces. And then getting them to perhaps understand that, actually, I did do something good. My pain isn't completely overwhelming or overbearing, and, you know, maybe I can make some changes. I think that I find that helpful. But, mm. you know, not, everyone, not every patient is happy with small gains. Um, but I, I think staying positive with chronic pain patients, for me... The more I get to know the patient, the easier it is for me to stay positive about them. The less I learn about the patient's backstory, the easier it is for me to be dismissive, frustrated, angry. That, that isn't always the case. Sometimes the more you learn about them, the harder it is to sympathize. <laughs> but by and large, you, when you can sort of see why they're struggling, I think positivity becomes a little bit different. And if we shift the goals and make, the, make achievable targets and they achieve them, then everyone can celebrate and pat themselves on the back and go, well, we're actually doing something here. The difficulty is when one or other person in that therapeutic relationship sets an unrealistic expectation mm. um, and then no one's going to leave the room happy. The disappointment that comes. Correct, yeah. 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 Raj, thanks so much. That's, I think we could probably sit here and talk for hours. About I'd love to, yeah. 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 It's this, I mean, there's so much we haven't really touched on, so perhaps another time, sure but thing. I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time to talk about chronic pain today. My pleasure. My pleasure.